welcome to another podcast episode of Indigenous Roots and Hoots produced by the Legacy of Hope Foundation. Indigenous Roots and Hoots is about Indigenous people and culture, past and present, success stories and inspiring stories about Indigenous people and what they are doing today. Whether it's arts, music, sports, business, education, and so on, Indigenous people are affecting positive change in their communities throughout Canada. Our aim is to create a better awareness about Indigenous peoples to help bridge the gap of understanding for the reconciliation process in Canada to grow. Today's guest is Steve Martin. Steve is Mi'kmaq from Lustigush First Nation and is married with three children. A devoted dad, Stephen is not the famous actor from Father of the Bride, but he has had an impressive career in the film and media industry nonetheless. In the early days of his career, Stephen worked at the Aboriginal People's Television Network as the Programming and Acquisitions Manager. He has a passion for documentary filmmaking, telling stories and sharing important truths. Through Connected TV, Stephen co-produced, co-directed and co-wrote a 13-part series showcasing the lives and culture, past and present, of Indigenous peoples across Turtle Island. Stephen has also dabbled in the recording arts and was the executive producer of Kevin Schofield, aka the Tennessee Crees studio album, Meeting Myself on Raven Street. In 2010, he ran for chief in his community and interviewed community members on the relationship between Canada and First Nations. These interviews became a web series entitled The Psychology of Being Me and are yet to be released. In this interview, you will witness Stephen as a candid, passionate activist and natural storyteller. Please enjoy. Hello and welcome to this podcast, Indigenous Roots and Hoots, produced by the Legacy of Hope Foundation. I'm your host, Gordon Spence, and our guest today is Steve Martin from Listigoose First Nation. Hello, Steve. How are you? Doing well. Thank you, Gordon. Thank you for, thank you for having me. Okay. Uh, maybe we can start by you talking a bit about your family background, uh, where you grew up, your cultural identity, and a bit about your home community. Go ahead. Sure. sure. So um, I'm from the Listigus First Nation, a Mi'kmaq community on the Gaspé Coast, located on the Quebec side. I was born in New Brunswick, in Campbellton, New Brunswick, which is the northern, the northern city of the province of New Brunswick. The reason I was born in New Brunswick is because it was the nearest hospital. So the um, my mother gave birth in New Brunswick, yet my community is in um, on the Quebec side. I lived in Listigush for the first seven to eight years of my life and then my mother moved to the south shore of Montreal where I grew up in Brossard. Um, she was a single mother, had left her husband at the time. We moved into a three-bedroom apartment and uh, in an apartment complex uh, between I have three siblings at that time, two older sisters and a younger brother and my mother picked up and, and left and um, we ended up living in in Brossard uh, away from the community it was um, you know I would go back every summer visit my grandparents or my grandmother I should say and my cousins and so I really got to know the community from from a bit of a distance um, during the school years but I returned in the summer you know it wasn't exactly the first-hand connection to your indigenous community as you would get if you just lived in the in in a in a, on the res, but it was a different experience just living off the reserve, right? I um, mm-hmm. it caused a lot of different, you know, uh, questions about my own identity that I'm, I imagine that I'm sure there are a lot of um, Indigenous people who are feeling at the moment. 
it's it's this sense of detachment from your community yet you do still feel very proud of who you are and where you're from and um that was kind of been that was kind of some overhanging feelings and thoughts about you know who i was and how i was connected to my community having said that i wasn't born stephen martin i was actually born stephen cablin my uh, biological father he is from listigush my mother remarried and in my teens she asked to um have us change our name to to martin my stepdad at the time he is from listigush as well so there was never that issue of of, of um you know losing your identity through my mother marrying out or anything like that obviously um but um, I changed my name. I changed my name from Capel to Martin to my teens. So uh, on top of the idea of, of living off the reserve and having that identity crisis, I was dealing with the name change crisis. And um, it was rather, um, it was an interesting time, time to do that in your teenage years because you're, you know, um, you've, you've established yourself as a, as a, you know, at that time I was Steve Capel to everybody at school. When I went back one year and, and the teacher did the class enrollment she she skipped through Capelin and went to Martin and I recall people in the classroom thinking you know saying and that's not his name his name is Steve Capelin and and I had to kind of explain to the classroom that no actually I, I changed my name over the summer so there was so there was that whole aspect of changing your name and 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 dealing with um being an off reserve indigenous person and trying to see the world through that that lens and uh, returning all the time. And you know, it was a bit of a, you know, it was an eye opener, I would say, in terms of, of trying to understand your own identity, I guess you could say. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I know uh, it must be, uh, must have been a challenging time for you. I could sense that. And uh, I kind of felt, kind of went through the similar thing. I, uh, I lived off reserve for most of my life and I, I do now today. You go through, you know, a period I think uh, a lot of young people that are living off reserve go through different kinds of challenges. Uh, my son's the same way, my, my, my three children kind of, you know, but they've embraced the culture and uh, we go back once in a while when we get a chance to, you know, go visit uh, Split Lake, uh, my home community. Uh, yeah, well, it's a, it's a very tricky question, right? And it's it's one I have uh, conversations with with my kids. My kids are three. I have three kids, right? And they're all in their twenties. But yeah. well, through their life, they were always faced with with this question. They, did, you know, I could always say I lived for the first seven years in my community, but they they can't say that they they lived in they lived off reserve. So they've asked me in the past some advice. They've asked for some advice about how to deal with the whole indigenous identity uh, issue and. Um, it's a tricky one and, and it's one that we actually should talk about. You know, it could be very hard for people to feel attached to their community and when they're when they, you know, when they haven't lived there. Right. Yeah. But at the same time, they also know that they are from that community. It's it's a very a tricky conversation. Exactly. Yeah. I've gotten away with it through through kind of just ensuring that they um, you know, that they should be proud of who they are and um you know regardless of where you live that doesn't change who you are so yeah, yeah. of course uh, we're going to get into it but that's been really at the end of the day the basis of my entire work in mm -hmm. television and so we'll get into that uh yeah. it's been a tricky question i've been that's really underpinning a lot of the work i've been doing yeah does uh 
Mr. Goosh, do they speak Mi'kmaq? And also yourself, did you pick up any of the language when you were growing up the first seven years there? Unfortunately, no. I was in that time when um, when you were um, discouraged, I guess you could say, from speaking your language. It wasn't necessarily, hey, don't speak your language. It's just, it's just that they didn't speak your language around me. Right. I, should, I could be careful here because my parents, they spoke, both my parents speak Mi'kmaq. They, yeah. You know, most of my cousins who live in the community, they 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 speak Mi'kmaq. Well, hang on a second. Let me say that. Let me correct myself. My aunts speak Mi'kmaq. Yeah. I have cousins who do speak Mi'kmaq, but there's a number of them who don't either. When you're not, um, when I was growing up in, in Brossard, one of the things I used to always hear was the Mi'kmaq language used when my parents didn't want us to understand what they were saying. Right. Yeah. It was never, hey, um, sit down and they teach you words you know it wasn't like that yeah it was more yeah. um you, you tried to pick up you tried to pick up the language based on what they were saying against the actions they were doing you know that kind of uh, language learning you, you know if they tell you to um reach for the salt they'll, they'll explain the uh they'll say the word in, in Mi'kmaq you know that kind of teaching yeah it was never a full sentences type of thing you know? right yeah you, know, you have to like hear it and speak it almost daily you know to get a to start to learn it and, uh, and that's one of the projects we're working on right now revitalization of languages across Canada and there's and that's happening quite a bit now uh, people are going back to their language trying to relearn their language and the culture it's very uh, uh an interesting time for indigenous people and the whole language issue I wanted to uh just move on a little bit we'll get to your other 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 parts of your life we want to talk about and for for those of low, who don't know you were the executive producer for an album by Kevin Schofield tell us about this and who is Kevin Schofield well Kevin Schofield is a um he's a Cree from Moose Factory and a great friend of mine who I've had for a while Kevin Schofield was the subject of a documentary I was doing on him a couple of years ago. Kevin Schofield may be this the way I would, the way I would put it. Kevin Schofield is the greatest indigenous singer song, singer songwriter you haven't heard of until now. He wow. is a 54 year old singer songwriter who has um, lived on the streets. He has been homeless. He has faced issues in his life that would more than likely stop most people. He's he suffered a stroke. He's um, had a broken marriage, but he's had this this love for 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 performing and singing singing country music songs. And what happened was a couple of years ago in 2019, well, he and I, I'd started doing a documentary on Kevin's life. I was doing a, a story about how he grew up in Moose Factory, how he moved to Toronto, how he lived in Ottawa, how he was married, how he had kids and how he, all that fell apart. And he took his chances of going to Nashville to, to uh, take his shot at, you know, at Nashville, really. Um, and I've asked him in the past what he, you know, if that was his motivation. And then he's told me in the past that it wasn't necessarily just to go there and, and try and get discovered, but more of a, a, uh, a tribute to the, to the, to the city and, and, and the 
country music scene. So when I was doing his documentary, this is 2000, this is before COVID. And, and at the time he had just gotten a gig at the NAC that was, that was uh, canceled on him. It was just one of those really at that point, that was the, that was just another uh, event that canceled him and, and, and forced him to kind of uh, dig deeper to kind of continue. And at, at that point, Kevin had met some bandmates and they were in, they went to his studio. I had known Kevin for years and I'd, I'd listened to his music and, and I knew that he had an, a repertoire of about at least 20 to 30 good songs that were just all originals. And so we went into the studio last September and um, he was playing a track with a band. And at that point I realized that if they, if the band had actually if they were to do all of the songs that Kevin had written, it would take them years at that pace. So what I decided to do is, was kind of break the break a rule as a filmmaker and really get involved in, in, in helping Kevin in his life. It, it was, and it's really, it still is a question I'm dealing with as a filmmaker is when do you get involved in the, the, the subject matter that you're actually filming? Kevin in the past had asked me to manage him and I didn't, I don't know the first thing about music. So I didn't, or the music industry. So I didn't, you know, I kind of told him I just wasn't, uh, I was, wasn't up to it. But over time, I, I thought that the story was his story was just, just getting a little too sad for my, my, my liking to sit back and just do nothing about it. So I, um, I told him that I would at least very, at the very least, get him into his studio so that his all of his songs that he had written could be recorded in a professional environment and laid down so we could actually just have them preserved and um, that was the intent so uh, last september we went into raven street studios here in ottawa i sat down with kevin and we we talked about a plan to, to have his music played how he how he's you know um how to tell a story through all the songs and he went in and and laid down his very first studio album and it's a solo album and it's called meeting myself at raven street it's the story of um of a man who 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 found himself ultimately in the studio and was able to release his inner demons i guess you could say through song through singing i'm quite proud of it and it's you know as um it's a tough question to kind of start the conversation with because it's the last thing I did. And um, so there's a lot of lead up into that. Right. But I'm very proud of what I've learned from dealing with Kevin and, and dealing in the music industry. It's, it's easy because you can say this and say, oh, yeah, it's, it's very self-serving. I, I was helping Kevin. I'm, I was, yes, I was helping Kevin, but I was, I was also at the same time learning a complete new industry. I, I wasn't aware that was going to be the case when I got involved in it. But uh, I think what you'll find in my story is that I've always taken these, these little turns here and little pivots. And I've, and I've learned, I've taken so much joy out of actually just learning about a new industry. That's kind of what I'm, what I'm getting at from Kevin is, is this complete new learning curve about the music industry. It's, it's, it's a, a very difficult industry. Right. Your Radford Chief of your reserve, Ristigouche First Nation, and produced a documentary titled The Psychology of Being Me. What inspired you to do the documentary while running for chief? Well, this is this this is the question 
that I've um, been dealing with. Why did I run for chief? So 20 years ago, Tuesday, Michael Moore was presenting a documentary called Bowling from Columbine at the Halifax Film Festival. At the time, I was working at APTN, the Aboriginal People's Television Network. I was their program acquisitions, acquisitions manager, and I was also their program development officer for Eastern Canada. So what that meant was that every project that, that uh, a producer had to pitch to ABTN, if it came from Ontario, Quebec, and East, or from the North, the project landed on my desk, and I would read it. And I would basically kind of um, analyze it to see whether it met the needs of APTN. And then if it did, I would take that pro project and I'd move it up the chain to Jim Compton, who at the time was my boss. We were in Halifax at the, at the film festival uh, and Michael Moore was presenting Bowling for Columbine, Bowling for Columbine. And the reason he was presenting Bowling for Columbine was because the film was actually executive produced and financed by a company in, in Halifax. Michael Donovan was the producer and somebody else who um, I apologize for not getting your name. And while he was in the, when he was presenting the documentary Bowling for Columbine, he spoke in, in, in advance of the, of the screening and to a packed house. And I was sitting there next to a gentleman who will, um, I won't give you his last name, but his name was Peter and he worked at Telefilm Canada. Michael Moore said, you know, gun control is an issue in, in the United States, but if I lived in Canada, I wouldn't be doing a documentary on gun control. I'd be doing a documentary on how two major corporations control all the media or how Canada treated, treated its Indigenous people. And I was sitting in the audience and I thought, damn, this place is packed. And this whole, at the time, we're talking 2002, I'd never at that point heard anybody openly criticize Indigenous people his audience, sorry, um, criticize at that time what I thought was a white audience because that's who was in the audience. Right. And it was a message I thought that they need to hear, at least from somebody who was outside of Canada. I just, it just sat with me and I was like, wow, Michael Moore just laid this subject out. Later that night, I ran across Michael Moore. We were, it's funny because of the Jim Compton and I and um, two Maori producers from New Zealand we were sitting in the in a bar at the bottom of the of this conference hall we were like lost we weren't lost but we were in a in a bar that was away from everybody and we were pretty much the only people in the bar we're sitting there and and right outside the door is Michael Moore and he looks lost because he's expecting to see a place that's got a lot more people in it and um and I got up and I said look I'm gonna go talk to Michael so I got up out of my chair and I approached Michael and I say hey, Michael I I Thank you for what you said and, uh, you know, about how if you lived in Canada, you'd do a documentary on how Canada treated its, treated its Indigenous people. He said, I meant every word of it. And, I, and I, I thought, well, I hope at some point to at least take up his idea. So I was at APTN and I, I left um, APTN in 2003. And that whole idea of how Michael Moore would treat the subject of how Canada treated its indigenous people. I, I, it was on my mind and I, it, the thought occurred to me that I would try and do a documentary like Michael Moore had created. And if you know, Michael Moore, he, he takes an issue and he, he tries to expose it by, by almost 
exposing the hypocrisy or the or, or the some sort of he, he creates this I got you kind of moment to kind of make you realize the 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 point he's trying to make right so I ended up living with that idea for years trying to figure out how Michael Moore would would tackle this issue but more than that I was trying to figure out you know how Canada treated its treated its indigenous people that subject onto itself it occurred to me while I was researching this documentary because at that point I was like I'm doing a documentary on this I gotta try and figure it out and it occurred to me as I was doing the documentary that um you know I figured out the I gotcha moments I figured out the the tactics in which Michael Moore delivers his message, and I kind of started working with that. So, for instance, it was in 2004, a World Vision representative came to my house. The World Vision representative looked around my living room and, and, and saw that I had native artifacts on the wall. He said, you know, if you want to spend your money here in Canada, you could actually spend your money uh, by supporting World Vision, who at that point at that time was assisting in first nations communities in Canada. And it occurred to me that when did it become acceptable in Canada for world vision, this world leading health humanitarian agency to be operating in Canada. Yet no one really thinks about podcast it. At the time I thought, you know, you think of world of vision, Foundation. you think of some music impoverished by David African Kinkle. country, but here it is like this in our to country. Learn more about the work we are doing, so I thought, okay, so if this was the reality, then what would Michael Moore do to expose that? And I created this kind of this scenario where, where I would kind of go door to door as a world vision rep and explain to the person who answers the door that this money will not go to Africa. In fact, it will go to Canada and Canadians who are being assisted by World Vision. It was just that one little example of just how Michael would tackle a subject like that and bring it out. Another one would be um, a little more crude, was the um, Scout Proclamation Act. As you know, in, in Nova Scotia, they had this Scout Proclamation Act. They essentially what it is, I think it was... For every Mi'kmaq scalp that uh, was brought in, this is this is by the way was an act that it was still on the books, and I I can almost be argued it still is on the books. I actually haven't read that has been rescinded, so I could be corrected on that. But at the time, it was still on the books, and my thought was to expose something such as that. My idea was to get some wigs, black wigs, throw some ketchup in a box, and go and get my twenty pounds per scalp, which was actually what the, um, the bounty was. Well, so I thought that's how Michael Moore would tackle an issue like that. So that the audience would say, wow, that's just, that's just, how can that be? Right. And I lived with that for a while. And I created this entire, this entire documentary pitch that basically outlined how Michael Moore would tackle the issue. And I tried to figure out how I could steal his methods and kind of, create a documentary doing just as he proposed that said when i was doing the documentary and i was reviewing it and i was trying to figure out what exactly what my goal was which was to get canadians and indigenous people to talk to each other i realized that any moment i actually brought up anything that had to do with indigenous issues the common refrain from the other side is how much money do we spend on your issues you're all welfare dependents. You're all genetic alcoholics. Your communities are this. Your communities are that. 
that's just generally if somebody wanted to end a conversation, that's generally where they would go. That's kind of, a, you know, being a little negative about it, but that's kind of how I figured it would play out if I actually went down that road. So I said, okay, I can't do that. To go back to why I ran for chief. At that point, I realized if this is the ambition of the documentary is to get Canadians and Indigenous people to kind of address their stereotypes and get them to talk to each other, then what I should do is go to my community and push the conversation forward and say, look, I don't need to go to Canadians to verify the stereotypes that they already uh, have in their heads about us. We all know it. We hear it. I want to go to our people and say, hey, this is what they're saying about us. They're saying we're this, we're, they're saying they're, we're that. What do you have to say about it? The goal at that point was to take the answers that they give us and go to Canadians and say, okay, you think we're, we're this, you think we're that. Here's what my community members have to say about that. And at that point, that would be the starting point for the conversation going back and forth. So what I, what I determined was that while Michael, Michael, Michael Moore's methods are useful and they have their ways, a lot of times when you're trying to, to if your end goal is to get people ha to have a conversation at the end of the, the documentary, then for this purpose, I believe it was more beneficial for me to actually move the conversation along further by actually going to my people and saying, hey, this is what they say about us. There's no reason for us to, to, to ask the questions. We know that's what they say about us. So that's it. Now, so what happened was I, um, I want to tie in a bigger story to, to what happened 20 years ago to the bigger project that I've been working on, and that's Connected TV. Okay. Now, in 2000, I think it was like 2006, 2007, I started writing the documentary proposal for the psychology of being me. I kind of gathered up my information, figured out how I wanted to deliver the thing, how different it was going to be. Uh, threw in some reenactments, tell the story of a, an Indigenous guy who grew up in, in Montreal, who was chased around the apartment complex because he was English speaking. Really tell a story that kind of highlighted how I be became aware of non-Indigenous people and, and my community and so forth. So I pitched APTN, the Psychology of, be of, me, sorry, the Psychology of Being Me documentary, laid out a, a narrative that kind of was going to tell my story and me running for chief, Michael Moore's influence and all that was going to be encapsulated. So I pitched APTN really at that point, just for development funds to continue um, to develop this project. What happened was they gave me a few thousand dollars to continue writing it. But what I did was I took that money and it was at that time I realized that if I'm going to move this forward, then I'd probably be better if I actually instead of writing more about it, that I actually took and hired a video camera or a video cameraman and had him follow me and, and, and decided, okay, let's start this documentary. So I figured somewhere in the spring of 2010 that the best way to do this was, was to take the perspective of running for chief in my community and to kind of analyze it from the perspective of, of what the political system must look like and then start to ask the questions from that position. I'm, I'm now running for chief. 
Uh, I want to ask questions about how Canadians see us, how we can move this conversation forward. But then I also warned people on Facebook not to vote for me either. I was like, I was like, look, guys, this is don't waste your vote. Um, my last community, the election in our um, in our community, the last election, I think it was like two years ago, the chief, the incumbent Darcy Gray, he won by one vote. Can you imagine? So every vote counts in a, in a, in a community vote. So um, I ended up um, running for chief and uh, I ended up taking that money. And, and funny thing is, is I thought, okay, I'm going to need a cameraman. And if I'm going to go into my community and ask these types of questions, I better bring in a, a, an indigenous cameraman. So I went into my data bank and, and really the only indigenous cameraman I knew was a gentleman in Northern Ontario a former colleague of mine. So I called him up and I said, Hey, would you be interested in being a cameraman for this documentary? I'm trying to get off the ground. You know, I was willing to pay him and so forth. So, um, he needed an advance to, to get on the plane. So I ended up sending him 500 bucks to get on a plane. Well, the uh, day he was supposed to arrive, he never showed up. I ended up trying to call him. I said, Hey, um, we're supposed to be shooting. Are you coming? And he made an excuse that he couldn't make it. So at that point, I had to scramble to get a, a cameraman to help me for this. So I ended up reaching out to a cameraman in right outside Mariah, which is in a, a Mi'kmaq community about an hour from where we were. The cameraman at the time, his name was Eli. And uh, Eli agreed. He said, okay, I love the subject matter. I'll, I'll come down with you and um, let's do this. So I hire Eli and uh, he follows me around as I, as I'm running for chief and I'm interviewing different people. The funny thing about it was, is that when you're doing interviews, such as what I was doing, you could only ask the people you're interviewing so many times, you know, please respond to how uh, Canadians see us as, as alcoholics, please respond to how Canadians see us in, in whatever way. At some point, you're, you're going to get the same answer. So I, I realized at that point, I need to step away from having a documentary just about how Canadians saw us. And then I realized what I had to do was start to use that moment to start to ask our own people, how are we doing in other areas such as self-government? Are we ready to lead ourselves? You know, how are we doing in terms of the harmony of our community? While I interviewed 13 different people, the first three or four were directly related to how do Canadians see us? And I turned it to really at that point was where are we in 2010 as our, as, as Mi'kmaq people and how are we doing in these different specific questions? Now it's funny because at the end of it, the answers were so um, candid and everybody was so um, honest with their opinions about the questions I asked that, when Eli was, was done, uh, when we were done and Eli was basically packing his bag and he, and he knew at that point I was ready to go and ask, um, the next phase of this was to take the answers and go and ask Canadians, you know, to respond to the, to the answers. His comment to me was, I really hope that the people that you're going to interview my people, or in his case, Canadians are as honest and as forthright as, as my community members were. I remember that being the the, um, the the lasting kind of impression that Eli had on on the work that he did with me. Now, 
years later, it was probably about December. I want to say about December 23rd, 2012 or 2013. I, I know this because at the time, when you're at that point of the year, you kind of do this kind of quick reflection of how your year went. And you get kind of like, okay, how did it go this year in your, your business or whatever it is you're doing? And you're like, yeah, I did great. And I was like, so I was ready to pack in. It was December 22nd, actually. And I was ready to pack it in for that year, quite happy with how the how the year it went. And then I get a phone call from Eli and he says, hey, Steve, uh, I got this, this project I'm in development on. Would you like to be involved with it? And I said, sure, give me the pitch. And he pitched basically Connected TV. He was going to APTN with it. And you have to understand that when you're going to APTN as a non-Indigenous production company, you have to go through the door with an Indigenous production company just to get your project listened to and, and approved. So he came back to me after um, that experience in Listigush and asked me to be part of Connected TV. I agreed. And from there, we ended up doing this documentary series that, that took us across the Americas. And what we did was we... The, the, the premise of the documentary was to explore how modern day people are, are, are finding a place in the new world for old ways. So what we did was we took each episode, created a subject and a theme per episode. We just tackled each episode. So in, for instance, our episode one, we went to Hawaii and we dealt with the issue of food sovereignty. And we talked to um, Daniel Anthony. Um, then with the second episode, we went to Chile and talked about music with a, with a group from um, uh, Santiago called Wichikichi Nutrion. We, we learned about their, their lives and, and the issues that they're dealing with. We went to Mexico and then told the story of the Raramuri and, um, and a race called um, the Cabello Blanco and so forth and so forth. We had 13 episodes. For the record, I didn't go to all of them. I only went to the first three. The last remaining ones were shot with Picasso Mukash and uh, our audio guy, Felix, and, and Eli as the cameraman. So all this to say, from that, if I had not, 20 years ago today, 20 years ago, Tuesday, if I would not heard from Michael Moore talk about how if he lived in Canada, he'd do a documentary on how Canada treated its indigenous people. I would never have considered the idea of, of how to deliver on a subject matter as he does. I would not have seen the opportunity or the need to run for chief. I would never have met Eli. And if my guy who, my indigenous cameraman doesn't show up, or sorry, if he actually shows up, then I never meet Eli. And I never get connected TV in my background and the connected TV education curriculum that we're going to talk about that never happens that all of that from 20 years ago, Tuesday. So what is the lesson there for filmmakers and aspiring filmmakers and anybody who wants to work in this business? I'm, I'm working on projects that I started. You talk about Kevin Schofields. We started that 10 years ago, really you know just really just thinking about the possibilities what could we do you know and trying to identify his life story uh, it just takes so long to to get an idea flush it out to figure out your financing for it that it, it just takes years 
you created, you also created an online educational curriculum project development site. What, what subject areas do you teach and how can people access this course? Well, in 2017, I was looking at my connected TV series. I had 13 episodes. Each episode had a different subject and a different theme. We had, I'll just run you through some of them. Yep. We had in Canada alone, we had Brigitoli. We profiled Brigitoli and her work in, in raising awareness for murder and missing Indigenous women. We did a story on Michael Doucette from Nova Scotia, a Mi'kmaq elder, and how he um, brought the return of um, ceremony back to his community. And we told the story of Takaya Blaney out in BC who visited the residential school of her, of her father. And we tell the story of, of how they, um, of how they're uh, dealing with their history and their family history within the residential schools. We went to Arizona and told the story of Klee ben Benali, who's doing work to raise awareness to uranium mining in his community. So, and it just went on for 13 different episodes. One was spirituality, another one was uh, traditional farming storytelling in Ecuador, uh, you know. And what I realized was that at the time, education, the education field was um, in a bit of an upheaval in the sense that it was trying to deal with the fact that the, the, the industry was, was changing in the sense that it was going more from an education delivery system to an edutainment uh, delivery system. That being is that your student who walks into your door or into your classroom is expecting more than just a lecture. They want to be, um, they want to have video material. They want to, right. they want to have supplementary, you know, material that goes beyond just books. So what I did was, I recognized that and I started to lay out my, all of my, my episodes and and I looked at all the unused footage that didn't make it into the into the episode, and started to take the discussion points out of the themes and the subjects. And I, and I really, what I did was I created a curriculum that is unlike anything you, I've seen in the sense that we tackle 117 discussion points in our, in our education curriculum. So there's 13 episodes, all have different themes. Each episode has three sections. Each section has three discussion points. All that makes up for 39 different subject headings, 117 discussion points with over 700 minutes of video footage. That's the complete totality of all the video components of the, of the curriculum. So what I did was I laid it all out, put it on a, um, a website using uh, teachable.com, which is basically a, um, a website that's online that allows you to develop video-based education curriculums and i and i created this curriculum and at the time i was thinking okay well this is kind of what universities are looking for this is what colleges are looking for this is what i believed at the time the was a you know going to be a very qualified tool for education institutions well i ended up pitching it to mcgill university looking for um some collaboration looking for some feedback on how to improve it. And I also pitched to Ottawa U, a friend of mine who was a professor there, and they looked at it, uh, invited me to, Ottawa U invited me to the Restoring Conference they held, 
and I was a uh, presenter. And McGill University hired, well, sorry, they invited me to be a speaker for their RISE uh, symposium back in 2019. We're venturing into, we're venturing into some very serious conversation points here that are um, that really need to be addressed. I want to I want to recognize the opportunity that you've given me here, Gordon, and that the Legacy of Hope Foundation. I understand the work you're doing, but I want to get the opportunity to say this. So what I did was I um, created this this memo, I guess you could say, that basically outlined the state of the industry, the state of the education field, what I believed was happening, how to be how and how it could be improved. I think it's important that I kind of lay this out here because I've said it privately and I kind of want to use this opportunity to say this. Take your time. Having worked at APTM and been in the television industry, you have to understand what I come to understand about my industry is that we are not in the, in the entertainment business. This is not the entertainment business. It is per se is what you would, you know, you're in the film industry, but we are not. This is the copyright business. At the end of the day, a producer, an executive producer, or a studio, at the end of the day, when they actually finish producing the content and your program is aired and, and all that's done, what is left are the rights that are embedded in the contract that you have with your broadcaster or your financier. You're in the copyright business. We take that content and we recognize that there are rights embedded by the creation of the content. The educational institutions, they all recognize this as well. So what they've done, in my estimation, is they've reached out to Indigenous education departments in each community, and they're entering into agreements with these education institutions. I'm talking about the educate Indigenous directorates, you could say. They're entering into agreements with an a institution that at some point will share in the copyright ownership of the video, of whatever is created. So I'll give you an example. I'll even draw some names down. I, I don't mind doing it. McGill University has a program which they deliver in Listigush. Anything at that point, Listigush develops with McGill. I haven't read their contract. I don't know what the agreement is, but I'm assuming that there is some sort of collaboration of ownership between McGill University and Listigush. At that point, McGill University becomes a copyright, a copyright owner of education curriculum content. I don't know for a fact that that's actually what's happening, but I will leave this fair warning to those of you who are working in the education departments across the country that when you enter into an agreement with a, an educational institution, you are not developing education content. You are developing copyright protected content. And who you, who you share that copyright with is going to have some sort of, not only a say in that content, but also they're going to be profit sharing partners. So I know this as a fact because if I were to try and sell connected TV series into an educational institution, the educational institution will have to pay me for it, right? 
franchise distribution agreement and so forth. Now, we are at a time when the entire university and college system is re-looking at how indigenous education is being delivered. And they are trying to figure out a way to modernize their entire bookshelf of information into a modern means or a modern way of delivering it. They're doing that by entering into agreements with communities and they're developing these curriculums in collaboration. That's kind of the point I was trying to make. What you have to be aware of is this. This is a, an opportunity for education directorates and community leaders to take control of their curriculums, understand what they're dealing with, and create a financial model where they're not necessarily giving up rights or copyright rights to their content, but more and more like licensing their contents to the institutions. So APTN, I'll give you a go back to, so when I was at APTN, I was a program acquisitions manager. So I bought content that went on the network. So I would deal with Alliance Atlantis, I'd work with, deal with Disney, I'd work with MGM, and I bought their content. If I bought their movie, I would have to negotiate a, a price, a, a number of years in which APTN could air the product. We would actually have a certain number of runs in which we could be allowed to use. So, so for instance, a, a movie such as Dance Me Outside, we, we, would, we would buy it for two years, but we would only have the right to play it for a certain amount of times during the course of that license period. So it'd be like six times, and then that was it. And then after that, the ownership goes back to the copyright owner, or, and then we'd have to kind of renegotiate a uh, contract with that distributor or the owner of that copyright. Well, this is the same situation. You were by this, I'm saying you're if you're giving McGill University or any university a perpetual ownership of that content that is created from our communities, then you're giving up a financial avenue for revenue generation for your education curriculum. That's my what I'm getting at. So what I did was I started to figure out, okay, how could you how could you create a system where the person in the community who is developing this and filming this educational content is able to shoot it, maintain the ownership, yet license it to a place like McGill University. That is the key. It's not necessarily getting into an agreement with McGill University just for the sake of getting into an agreement with McGill. It's trying to figure out a structure in which you as the copyright owner hold on to the copyright and you're not giving it away for free or at less value than it's actually worth in the long term. Right. So this is what's happening across the country. The University of Toronto, every single university, every single college is, is trying to figure out a way to make their education, edu education curriculum more edutainment delivery as opposed to, you know, education. Yeah. Is that why your uh, your guest speaker at McGill University and Ottawa U relating to the subject you're talking about? No, well, Ottawa U was more of um, the, the conference theme was was restoring. So they were basically trying to figure out how reevaluation of the stories that have been told in the past, um, how they impact the current curriculum of, of Ottawa U. So they were bringing in different speakers to say, here are the changing times, here are the things we're working on, um, how do we move forward? McGill University was more of 
who's out there and what are you doing? You know, and yeah. and I I presented my curriculum and they they invited me to, to to speak to what I was doing. Okay, we're getting near the end of our podcast. Uh, I want to ask you a couple more questions. You received the Jane Godfrey Award from the Native Women's Association of Canada. What was this award for? Well, what happened was, I was you know we're talking. We're talking 2004, 2006. At the time, murder and missing Indigenous women was being discussed, but it wasn't at that point being discussed to the point where I thought it should be in the sense of, I think that, you know, there should be some criticism to the mainstream media that it, when there's an Indigenous woman who goes missing, it never seems to make the front page news. But when there's a white white lady goes missing, you know, it's, it's on the front page of, of CTV's websites and so forth. So what happened was I was aware of the highway of tears and I'd read about another victim on the highway of tears at this particular time. And I, and I thought, okay, enough of that. Her name was Aliyah Katrina Sarik Agur. She was 14 years old. She was found on February 10th, 2006, shortly after she went missing on February 2nd, 2006, after going to a mall with her brother and sister. It was reported that she was last seen getting into a black van. I woke up one morning and I saw and read that news and it was on the back pages of the CTV uh, website. It was like on a third page. And I, I just, at that point, I'd grown frustrated and pissed. And I said, you know, this is ridiculous. And I got to do something about it. At the time, I was more concerned with the fact that the media was treating it the way it did. It was, you know, we were, again, the hypocrisy is that that was a white Caucasian female. They would be broad broader news it would be you know front page news so at that time i said i want to do something about this and um being in ottawa i thought that um we have the parliament hill here and if 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 i could i would lead a protest or at least a vigil or or something along those lines so i um i decided i was going to try and raise awareness to um, the issue of how the media is treating this subject and i created this event on the hill it was attended by bridget Tolley, um at the time, Sean Atlio was not the national chief. At the time, who was the, Beverly Jacobs was the president of NWAC. We had this vigil. That, you know, we walked from the Supreme Courthouse to the Parliament, and we went down to um, have a um, a feast afterwards to talk. And um, down at the Odell Friendship Center, and you know, um, it was shortly after that. I think it was that uh, a friend of mine named Bruce Sinclair, he and I created an equivalent to sisters in spirit. We created brothers in spirit. And um, with the help of uh, another elder and Kairos, we, we started meeting to try and talk about how we as men can help um, the women who are trying to, to, who are basically on the front lines of this issue. You know, over time, I, I had to um, step away from that, but I guess they felt it was um, worthy of being recognized. They, the NWAC gave me the, the Jane Godfordson Award the funny thing about it is that a couple of years later, I think they want to take it back. You know, when you go to these vigils, because I used to go to all these vigils, right? What happened was it would always seem to be the same people. And I never saw the likes of any of our leaders being there. One year I, um, I decided that if the chief is not going to come to us, then I'm going to go, we're going to go to the chief. So in, during one of those vigils prior to that day, we used to carry the, the women used to carry the 
a placard with a picture of all the with a picture of one of the victims on the and I think you've seen them they they hold placards up and they have pictures of the girls right and they hold them well one year we walked from parliament all the way down to Victoria Island and um, it was raining out and they had the pictures and I and all the you know we were gathered around a circle and there was a fire going and um when it was all over they I asked, it looked like they were going to take the pictures and they were going to put them in, in, you know, in the fire or something. I don't know if they were going to do it. I said, what are you going to do with the pictures? And they're like, well, we don't know. We're, you know. I said, well, do you mind if I take them? I said, oh. so they gave me the pictures and I brought them home. Um, never knowing what I was going to do with them, but I had them in my house and they're in my closet. Looking back on it now, it probably wasn't the smartest thing to do, but that's what I did. Well, that year, I think it was 2008, I went to frustrated by the chiefs for not showing up to the vigils on October 4th, I decided I was going to do something about that. So I went to the AGM, the annual general meeting for the assembly of first nations here in Ottawa. And I managed to get my way into the event, took my pictures with me in a black garbage bag and waited for the presentation fraud by NWAC. NWAC came up. It was her time of the day. Beverly Jacobs did her review of what things were going, how things were going. It was very short, you know, concise, and a little underwhelming from my uh, my perspective and point of view. So I got up out of my seat, and they, of course, you know, they they allow you to ask ask questions. And I um, got there with my pictures and my bag, and I opened it up, and I said, "Hey, I'm going to need some help here." Uh, and I started taking out the pictures of the girls or the women. I, what I recall was just how quickly people got up and took the pictures. It was like, it was like, it's just a matter of, Hey, I'm going to need some help here. And all of a sudden pff, people were taking the pictures out of my black bag and I was handing them out and we had them lined up in front of the, um, lined up in a row and, and chief Fontaine, Phil Fontaine was there. I remember it was, um, Michelle can't remember her last name uh, from Quebec. Um, anyway, she said, well, line up in the front, would you please? So everybody took the pictures and they lined up in front of the chief, chief's desk. And I basically said, look, guys, I've been going to these vigils for how many years now? And I've yet to see anybody from this office at the vigils. And at that particular point of that year, when Phil Fontaine wasn't at the vigil, I called the office. I said, hello, is Phil in town? And she said, yes, he is. I said, okay, thanks very much. And I hung up. That's all I wanted to know. He was there in town. There was no reason why he couldn't go from where his office was to go join the, the, the you know, the ladies and who were doing everything they can to raise awareness for this issue. So um, I called him out. I said, hey, look, you're the national chief. I can't think of a more important issue that you guys are dealing with on your schedule that could be discussed and to, to kind of uh, categorize it and limit to only, you know, a couple of minutes of, of, you know, of a review wasn't good enough for me. So I called him out. I said, you know, the one thing I, I've learned from being in the company of women who are, are fighting for this cause is they don't want you to be in front of them. In fact, they probably wouldn't even want you to be side by side with them. But if you were to have be behind them, that's all they ask for. So I thought to myself, Phil, 
you've got to come to the vigils. You're the national chief. How can you not be coming to these vigils? So I get a phone call a couple of months later, or maybe not even a couple of months, maybe a month later from somebody at NWAC. And uh, actually, it wasn't a phone call. It was a text message. And we had a long text message for about a, a good half hour or so going back and forth. And the person on the other end was basically telling me, how do you, how dare you do what you did when you don't even know what NWAC and AFN are doing behind the scenes? I was like, well, I didn't care. At the time, I didn't care. And I, I pr- probably still would hold that position. I don't think I was... Obviously, at this point, I could look back and, and and kind of second guess as to whether it was appropriate for me to do that. But I'm I'm not going to apologize. You know, there's something about there's something about knowing the difference between grandstanding and actual activism mm-hmm. that is has become clearer to me from doing the work that I do. Yeah, yeah. there've been there've been opportunities for me to kind of act in the same manner. I'll give you an example. One time we were in, um, so at APTN, because I was um, involved in the, in, in the movie Atarangelat as APTN's representative, I was invited to London, England. And in London, um, they had a series of different activities lined up for me as APTN's representative. They, what they did was, so one of the events was to, to present APTN and, and what it stands for at the, the Canada House in London which is their, their embassy. And uh, in advance of going to the event, they need to screen the videos that APTN, that I plan to play. And um, this video was produced by, uh, was in, produced internally at APTN. And it was produced by the, um, I guess, the promotions department. And in, the, in this video, it had um, a series of different protests that were, that indigenous people were doing on top of, uh, sorry, on the hill. So when they reviewed the video, they asked that that we change the video and that we actually take out the video of, of Indigenous people protesting on Parliament Hill. And in advance of going there, they said, well, did you make the changes? And I said, yeah, changes are made, all good. So when we went, when, when we went to the Canada House and played the video, I played the video and, had, and we didn't even make any of the changes. There was no, there was no intent on our part to even make any changes. <laughs> Obviously, you know, at the end of it, the lady who, who organized it, you know, she had a couple of choice words to say to me. But uh, at the time, I thought to myself, this is what APTN is about. You know, we're, we're about the, the landscape that we're trying to change is, is a landscape that involves and includes our voices and our realities. It's the kind of attitude that I had at the time. You know, that, that attitude I, I wouldn't say that was pure activism or grandstanding, but I've kind of tried to figure out the line between the two. It doesn't make you a lot of friends. You say that. Yeah. Well, you're being truthful and honest, you know, from where you're coming from. And you can never be wrong when you're telling the truth. You know, that's what I feel. We're at the end of our podcast here, and it's been a really interesting discussion. Uh, we've been talking to Steve Martin. He's from Vistigo's First Nation. Uh, he's a documentary filmmaker, educator on Indigenous peoples, smart, knowledgeable individual. And uh, the last question that has to do with reconciliation, Steve, uh, you know, there's been a lot of talk about 
in recent years about reconciliation and uh, I guess on both sides, uh, what can be done, who's doing what, what people's feelings on it. And, uh, you know, uh, since uh, the missing and murdered indigenous women and girls issues come to the forefront, the children's burial sites being discovered across uh, Canada and various residential school sites. Uh, and other issues like the Sixes Group and, uh, and uh, residential schools and uh, all these issues are coming to the forefront and people are talking about reconciliation. And I'd like to know what your feelings are on uh, this whole terminology, uh, what people are talking about, the, the word reconciliation and what it means to you. I have to recognize that my experience of dealing with reconciliation is complicated by the fact that I'm not sitting here today to talk about connected TV if it wasn't for Eli Laraberti and the group from PVP in Matan, Traduction Vipitchi. I'm not here, and a lot of the things that have happened to me in my life are not here without the assistance and the brotherhood of people who are non-Indigenous. So it's a very difficult question to ask. What does reconciliation look to you? I, I, feel, like, I feel like I'm living it already. Mm -hmm. You know? I have, so one of the things you um, know about me through my resume is I'm also, I've studied martial arts. Mm -hmm. And the lessons I learned in martial arts go beyond just the martial art itself. The karate club is my, and was my, my social network. And the people who were in that social network are not First Nations. They're just Canadians, fathers, uncles, brothers, sisters, mothers, you know, just regular people. But this issue about our history is, is, is always lingering behind it. It's a very difficult subject and question for even those, the people on the other end who are trying to understand it. They're having a very hard time trying to figure out their place in it all. I know this because much of really at the center of my work has always been trying to figure out a way to get the two sides to speak about each other. I've tried to figure out through, through the psychology of being me, just how tricky that question is. I should go to that. We should almost go to that question. Why is it called the psychology of being me? The psychology of being me is a play on words. It basically states that regardless of where you are in Canada, whether you're First Nations or Canadians, you are going to have an opinion on this matter. You, you can't come into this country as an immigrant without being welcomed by the fact that you actually have to pledge or speak out some indigenous acknowledgements. You have to acknowledge the land you're on. I mean, you can't even come to this country and become a Canadian citizen without recognizing that. So the reason I named it the psychology of being me is just that, is we all, you have an opinion about this question. Everybody has an opinion about how Canadians and Indigenous people feel about each other. Mm -hmm. We all do. Yeah. And I started this documentary in 2010, thinking at that time that was as bad as it was going to get in terms of the relationship between Canadians and First Nations people, only to see it actually get worse, if you can imagine that. You got to remember, prior to COVID, do you remember what we were, what the state of Canada Indigenous relations was like before COVID? Do you recall? 
Well, I seem to recall uh, the whole issue about missing and murdered Indigenous women being a big issue at the time. They had the, the protests on every child matters. I don't know more. We had the blocking news. We were, yeah. we, prior to COVID, we had shut down the train lines. Right, yeah, the blockade. The blockades. Yeah. Do you remember how that relationship, what that was doing to the relationship between Canadians and Indigenous people? It wasn't doing any good. It was doing no good. No. So the relationship from 2010 when I ran for chief to today has gotten worse. It really has. It, it's it, we've acknowledged the wrongs for sure we've we are discovering new horrors yeah for sure and somehow in all that it seems to me that the concrete of hate seems to be hardening you know it seems to be hardening in the minds of of some canadians who who just don't want to actually hear anything about progress on the issue of relationships between Canadians and, and Indigenous people. Yeah. So that leads me to question, you know, as a storyteller, as a writer, as a, as a filmmaker, as somebody who works in this business, I recognize that, Let's be honest, there are limitations to the depths or the lengths in which our messages can actually carry. You know, you got to be honest about that. I've said it before in dealing with Kevin. John Lennon, at the height of his fame, wrote Imagine, a song that is almost universally recognized as one of the great songs of all time. Right. What impact did that have on peace in this world? A lot. You think so? I think so. You think I'm that, John Lennon had influence on peace in Israel? I, I'm the skeptic. I'm the guy who says, well, there are limits to the power of music. That's my point. Yeah. I, I think, you, and it's almost, you're, you're naive to think that you as, an, as a, a musician or an artist are going to be able to conquer the issues that we're dealing with on a, in society. I think we're having a, at some point, as a filmmaker, you have to recognize your limitations. As a musician, you have to. I'm not saying that means you have to strive. I mean, you stop striving to make those changes. But so to go back to reconciliation, as a filmmaker, I know that the best I could do is kind of bring up the subjects, try to talk about it. But at the end of the day, this hardened concrete in the mindsets of Canadians who just don't want to hear anything about Indigenous people and 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 how we're, you know, our relationships getting better with Canadians. They don't want to hear it. They don't want to hear the negativity, you know. They don't want to hear how bad it was, how badly treated, how the Indigenous people were treated. And I think that's, they don't want to hear that. You know, I think, uh, not everyone, but I think a lot of Canadians, they don't want to hear that bad stuff, or what, what they did to Indigenous people. So... Gordon, you and I have talked about, so the next level for me is to do a podcast. I'm going to do a podcast and I would like you to be the guest on the podcast. Sure. And one of the things I'd like to talk to you about are some of the things I'm bringing up. So if, if you, if we could maybe preview some of that, let me ask you some of the questions I'd like to bring up. When, so in my documentary, I brought up the fact that Canadians feel we are as indigenous people, welfare dependent, 
genetic alcoholics. Our communities are corrupt. Does any of that resonate with you or in your reality of how Canadians feel about Indigenous people? Or am I kind of just uh, fueling the, 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 the fans of the fire? Am I, am I exaggerating things? Well, I think at one time, that was the general thought about uh, uh, Indigenous people. And I think because we grew up, and I grew up uh, hearing that all the time, I think I think it's kind of softened up a bit, you know. I think it's not as bad as it used to be at one time. But I think, you know, from what I've seen in my lifetime, I think it's actually getting better. Things are improving for Indigenous people. I'll be happy to be a guest on your podcast, and we'll have to figure a time and place when when it'll happen. And uh, well, these are these are critical questions, no? Yeah, for sure. These are the these are the critical questions. Yeah. The Legacy of Hope Foundation. What is you know what is the what is the role of the Legacy of Hope Foundation in all this? To try and uh, bridge an understanding, a better understanding about Indigenous people, which has been lacking. You know, the stereotype. We're trying to change that. Yeah, these, to... Are, these are the starting blocks of this conversation. Yeah. yeah. One of the things I um one of the things I did at APTN was I got to see the, the development of the industry from a almost like a top-down kind of approach. I was able to see the formation of all these small little production companies from across the country, you know, companies in Montreal, Toronto, Halifax that didn't exist prior to APTN. So we created, I was able to see the creation of, of the industry from that point of view. One of the things we always did was I always tried to figure out, you know, when we first, I'll give you, I'll give you an example. When we first launched, we used to hear jokes like um, APTN, the network where no one could pronounce the names of their shows. APTN, the Raw Meat Network, because we played documentaries where a lot of our, you know, like, people reading raw meat i guess and so we were always trying to change that perception we we're always trying to you know work on you know canada needs to know more about us from this is how we're going to teach them and uh in that process i got to know a young gentleman and a young filmmaker and his name was clint alberta he also goes by the name of clint karate chop and um clint was a filmmaker for the national film board and um one time he I'm sharing this story because one time he came to me and he pitched this project. We couldn't finance it and we couldn't move forward with it. Years later, I ran into a lady at the National Film Board. And she says to me, she goes, um, this guy, Clint, his project, you guys didn't finance it. I'm like, you're right. So that, I don't know, you know, she asked why. And I, at the time, I, I gave an excuse. But the point she was trying to make was, she goes, that guy's a genius. I said, well, wh why do you say that? I said, because he came into our office and he says, um, hey, um, I want to pitch a project. Here's the idea. And she said, and that, I recall the lady recalling the story. She said, I told him that, that Clint, you can't, you just can't come in here and pitch a project. You need a, an actual proposal. So um, you, need, you, need to, you need to put these parts into the proposal. And um, he said, okay, well, do you have a computer um, nearby? She sat him down with a, a a guest computer and he wrote the entire proposal up right there on the spot she said that was the first time anybody's ever done that and then and that he was kind of a genius and i kind of agreed so he pitched this project that was called whole w-h-o-l-e clint was um was gay 
probably likely transgender, I'm not quite sure. And um, he was at the forefront, in my opinion, of, of trying to tell these stories of um, this point of view. And when APTN declined his project, I heard um, either weeks later or months later that he committed suicide. And um, when I was at APTN, I was the one who delivered the news that he wasn't gonna get financed. So I wanna tell your audience and the Canadian audience that Clint Alberta, Clint Karate Chop, if he'd lived through that dark period of his life, he most likely would have been the most well-known and popular indigenous filmmaker in this world. That's how I feel. So I want to dedicate this podcast in my presence today to Clint Karate Chop, Clint Alberta. May his name be remembered. Thank you. On behalf of the Legacy Hope Foundation, Steve Martin, I'd like to thank you for taking the time to talk to us today. Miigwech. You're welcome, Gordon. Thank you very much.